Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Welcome to episode 49 of the Flying Free Podcast. Today, we are kicking off something brand new for this year. Once a month, I'm going to be interviewing a different survivor of abuse. We're going to be asking her questions like how she got into her abusive relationship, what are some of the ways that she coped, the strategies that she used, how she realized that she wanted to get out, what that process looked like for her, and what her life looks like now post-abuse. So we're going to this is actually sort of a miniature thing that we do of what of something that we do inside of the Flying Free Sisterhood group where we actually have these full-fledged butterfly stories once a month and we go they are able to go into much more detail because we have more time to talk with them but the podcast is we try to keep it to 30 minutes so we're going to try to condense their stories into a much shorter period of time but you'll be able to get a taste a little bit of a taste of what we do inside of of one of the things that we do inside of the Flying Free Sisterhood group. And if you want more information about how to be part of that group, um, you can go to joinflyingfree.com and find out all about what that group involves, what it costs, and how it can actually change your life. Without any further ado, let's dig into our interview with Becky. Hi, Becky. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Flying Free podcast. Hey, Natalie. Good to be with you. Okay, we're just going to dive right in and with my questions. And for, so first of all, I'm wondering if you can tell us how you met your husband and if you noticed any red flags before you married him. Well, I was uh, 18 and I didn't even know what a red flag was. I was raised in a very conservative evangelical Christian home, homeschooled, um, had a very abusive mother. Um, so I didn't, I had already learned by the time I was 18 to please everybody. Um, that that kind of I didn't have value. Everyone else did, so um, I didn't see the red flags. But looking back, there were so many red flags. Um, he he was very deceptive. Um, I we worked at the same bank, and he actually went in and looked at my bank account information. I was a big saver, and I worked three jobs, so I I was saving because I wanted to go to college, and I wanted to pay for it up front, and. Um, he knew that and he aggressively sought after me after that. And, um, he, he even lied and said, um, you know, I was very naive. I didn't know what sex was. I didn't, I mean, I did not know at all what it was at 18. And, um, he said, no, I have two doctors that said I'm sterile and he got me pregnant the first time. So he knew what the hook was and, and how to get me. And so that, um, you know, and with abusive parents, they told me that was my bed. I had to lie in it. So mm-hmm. that's how I met my abusive husband. Wow. Right out of the gate. Right. Oh, oh the, the day we got married, I was three months pregnant. We went to Gatlinburg. I got married three hours after we got married. We we're back at the hotel and he looked at me and said, and I don't want to say bad words on your show. <laughs> he said some very vulgar words and said, I own you. And then proceeded to just rail on me. And that was it. I knew from that moment on, life was going to be really bad. Wow. Yeah. 
So what were some of the ways then that he continued to abuse you throughout your marriage? His biggest one was gaslighting. Um, I was a pretty, even though I had come from abuse, I, I courageously left home at 18 with the shirt on my back and a Yugo, <laughs> if anyone knows what that is, <laughs> that is courage. <laughs> um, and, and so I, ha- I was a fighter in some ways. And, and, um, but I think he knew to gain control. For, he was physically abusive. Um, and he stopped after about seven years because he realized he threw me down the uh, concrete stairs when I was pregnant with our second child. And it put me into premature labor. The bag, her, um, her bag actually tore and I was on bed rest for six weeks to try to keep her from delivering. And, um, did you tell anybody how that happened? Oh gosh, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't tell what's really going on. Um, I had a conversation with a friend just yesterday about his neighbor and he's like, they just, they try to portray this like wonderful marriage. He goes, but there's just something not right about it all. And I'm like, Oh, I know what that is. (laughs) Like, that's what I lived. But you, I was too afraid, physically afraid, but also I don't think I wanted to um, deal with the reality because I didn't, I had been trained my whole life that I did not have autonomy, that I did not have my own choices. Um, So I wouldn't have even known what to do. I had no choices. Even if I were to confront the fact that he was abusive, I couldn't leave. I didn't have that right. I was in a marriage and marriage was basically slavery. I mean, that's what you're taught as an evangelical Christian. You have no rights. It's all about him and his you know, way of life. So, but the main tactic he used was gaslighting because I think he, he, in some ways he's a smart man. In other ways, he's really stupid, (laughs) but um, he knew that he had to break, break down my confidence to control me. And so I, I really spent the first 17 years completely confused all the time because I also would go to the church and say, I, he won't, now my ex would refuse to work for the, uh, we were married 20 years. And for the last 17, he refused to work. And I would go to the church and the church would say, well, it's because you have done something and you don't deserve to be provided for. So what are you doing wrong that is causing him to not work? And so it was, it was just so much confusion. There was an, every time I, I always say, I felt like I woke up in the middle of the ocean and I spent the entire day struggling to get to shore only to wake up in the middle of the ocean again. That's what my day to day felt like. Yeah. And so, and, and, you know, I had five kids in seven years and I had no choices there. I was not allowed to, even when the doctor said after baby three, if she has another one, she'll die. I still was not allowed to choose whether to have children Um, and by the grace of God, I am still alive and it really is by the grace of God. Um, so his, his main one was the gaslighting. He also did a lot of, if anyone was around, he would say positive things about me, but he never once in 20 years said, I love you. He never once in 20 years said, I'm proud of you, or I appreciate you. It was, he would say things like, you're just damaged goods because I had been, uh, sexually molested as a child. So that was his nickname for me, damaged goods. Or I would come out in a new dress for Sunday morning and I'd say, does this dress look okay? And he'd say something like, well, 
it might look good on somebody um, who isn't a cow. Like it was really just vulgar. And, yeah. and, that, and yet he portrayed this sophisticated, his family comes from money in front of everyone else. But behind closed doors, he was just, just nasty mean. Mm-hmm. And, and anytime I did something, and, and he would get worse at times because if I did something to um, maybe I landed a new job or a new contract, or maybe um, one of the kids started reading and I was really excited about it, uh, that's when he was worse. So anytime I did something, so I learned to not say anything. I learned to not communicate. Right. I learned not to cry. I learned not to show emotion. Um, so, yeah. So, well, that, that leads me to my next question then. What were some of the coping strategies that you used to get through that, those years? Probably denial would be number one, because I really, den- denial is part not understanding it, but well, I don't know. I was, I thought I've always thought it was denial. Forgive me, but I, I'm starting to wonder I, what, I didn't know what I was denying, <laughs> Yeah. but I would put it out of my mind, whether it was how, what he was doing wrong. You know, it, it was really hard to juggle five kids homeschooling and providing every penny that he would go and spend. So I would, you know, have enough money to pay the electric bill and he'd go spend every penny. And, I, and then I have to figure out very last minute how to pay the electric bill. Uh, he would write, he would get a credit card in my name and rack up all the way to the full extent of that credit card within a week. Um, we almost lost our home one time because of the credit card debt he racked up, had to refinance and never could get ahead financially. Um, so part of it was survival required an excessive amount of work. So I could not really focus on it. Yeah. And then the other part was, what am I going to do if I do focus on it? Like, I can't go anywhere. I can't sure. leave. I, I mean, here I am making all the money. I'm providing for myself. I am providing for the children. I, I do it all. And yet I cannot leave. And That's every crazy. church, we, we went to four churches over 20 years. And all four of them said the same thing. You're just his property. Essentially, they didn't say it that bluntly. They were, you know, nice Baptist and Presbyterians. And but basically, the Presbyterian worldview was Calvinistic, so God ordained your life to be this way. You need right. to just be content, you know. Baptists really, were more you're you're his property. Yeah, I mean it's it's the whole entire environment that you were in. It wasn't yes. like you were in a small fishbowl. You were actually swimming, like you said, you were swimming in an ocean, uh, and wherever you swam, you were in the same water. I remember one time finally having the guts to call his family. He has a sister who's a really nice person. And, and, and our electric was going to be cut off. It was in the middle of winter. And I just, I could not find a way to pay the bill. And he had, you know, obviously we have three cents in the bank kind of thing. And that was just the standard norm. We just never had a penny to rub together. And she, I just remember, I remember clear as day where I was sitting when I made the call, how much I'd cried before, um, cried out to God. And she just said, we just don't believe that we should get involved in other people's marriages. And I thought, oh my word. Now here's the woman, his sister enabled him. 
he was 30 something and I was 18 when we met, if that gives you any context to how bad this guy is, his sister, and he didn't work before I met him. Like he would, when I met him at the bank, that was like his first job and he was 30 something years old because his sister and his mother were always his enablers. And his mother was just a horrid person. But, um, Anyway, to give you any context, that's, I was, I was fighting. There was, I I wasn't just fighting every side. I had no support. I did not have any family support. Um, I have 13 brothers and sisters and, but it's from four marriages. So if that tells you how crazy. Yeah. So there was a lot of dysfunction in your growing up life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so part of it was, I could not ask for help because they were crazier than my actual husband. (laughs) And then the other part was, um, they didn't, they, their theological beliefs were you made your bed, you lie in it. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So you grew up in this dysfunctional family. All of your churches are basically dysfunctional because of their worldview about about marriage and everything. And then you're in this really abusive relationship. When did you, what, at what point did you come to realize, you know what, this is, this is not right. This is not of God. This whole package is, is just wrong and I need to get out. Well, it wasn't. um, So it happened at the beach. It's clear. I just remember it so clearly. We were at this beach cottage with the kids and some, there's like six families that always went to the beach at the same time every year. And we had one of the couples over playing cards. And my ex said he wanted to go to bed early. He was tired. So he went into bed. Well, I finished playing cards and I cleaned up the kitchen and, you know, did all the stuff you do before you go to bed. And I walk into the bedroom to go to sleep. And I wanted to put in his phone a reminder for something uh, before I forgot. And my phone had died. So I opened his phone and pornography was playing. Hmm. And I don't even know that I could ever adequately convey the magnitude of the watershed moment, (laughs) the eyes opening, because for 17 years, he had made me believe I was the problem. Mm-hmm. constantly reminding me of who I came from. He would say things like, you're just like your mother, even though my sole goal in life was to not be like her. Mm-hmm. Um, so he beat me down to, and then all of a sudden I went, it's always been him. Like it literally just shattered my whole world. Not in that I was, I didn't even care that he was doing it. It was, and that's, what's weird is I did not care that he was into porn. And then later found out he was, it was more, way more than that. It was unfaithfulness. He was an alcoholic the whole time. And I didn't even know he was very good closet alcoholic. Um, He was into drugs and, and later found out his pornography was um, just the most extreme grossness there is. And, um, but just that, none of that bothered me because what I could not comprehend was it's not me. I'm not the problem here. And so, but you know what that means? I turn around and go, oh, but now we know what is the problem. So now we can fix it. <laughs> and that just, you know, so it was three years before I actually filed for divorce. Um, I, I put two and a half more years of, I went back to the church and asked for help and they blamed me for it. They said, well, apparently you're not servicing your husband well enough. And so he has, that's, that's the only reason men go outside of the marriage is when the woman has not done her job. And so, um, yeah, and I would say, Natalie, the church wasn't just 
bad marriage philosophy. They taught me from a child I had no autonomy because women are were created to serve and were second and had to follow, could not be, could not lead and things like that. So even when I had the the moment of realizing it's him, not me, I still couldn't make a move to get out. It took saying I would rather burn in hell than to live one more day like this. And I kind of thought I might, and I was okay with that. It was that it got that bad because now once he was exposed, he doubled down. Right. He was way more abusive. Okay. So that, and that's what I'd like to get into next. What are some of the the challenges that you faced when you tried to get out and how did you overcome them? The biggest challenge was the church um, because the church was not only, first of all, I was working um, at the time traveling seven months out of the year. So the very last church we joined, it was Presbyterian and I didn't join it. He did. And I only went there a couple times a year because I would be traveling for work and I would normally take the kids with me. So, um, so, so of course, the only thing this church knows is what he tells them. And he always made a point to set the stage at any mm-hmm. church. He, since he didn't work, he'd go have coffee with the pastors and the elders. And he'd say things like, would you pray, please pray for me? My wife, she's so abusive. So he would always set the stage. So even when I went to ask for help, it was a no-win situation. So this church, Presbyterian, PCA, the pastor first blamed me for the pornography and the affairs. Then uh, when I did finally, oh, then he required me to go to counseling with a newthetic counselor who basically pulled out this big board and said, well, we know the problem is you. So what we're going to do is we're going to find out what sins in your life has caused your husband to have to rely on pornography for his needs. And I just thought it it only took about three to four months of that woman before. First of all, I got to a point of such my low has never been that low before. And I had thought of suicide. That's satanic oppression. You were literally under satanic (laughs) oppression. And and I remember um, this was the, the... God intervening. Our neighbor, who they are a couple that went to Barnes and Noble every Friday night for their um, date night, and they, as a joke, brought us a book that happened to be on the bestseller list at the time, and it was called The Sociopath Next Door. And my ex never read a read a book ever, <laughs> but I was like, "Wow, I wonder what that is." And I thought, "Well, I'll just read the first chapter." It described my ex-husband to a T and it had words like narcissism and I didn't know what that meant. Um, Cluster B, all that. So I started ordering books from Amazon about narcissism and literally realized this is what I'm living in. So I took the book to the counselor and I said, I think I figured this out. And as clear as day, she goes, well, only a narcissist would say that their spouse is a narcissist. And I was like, oh, my word. And so i that was the moment I was like this. And I really think it was somehow supernaturally God because I was so low. And I just said, this is not healthy for me. Let me write you a check. And I'm not going to be um, scheduling another appointment. But thank you for your time. I was really sweet. I was still really sweet about everything. Yeah. Um, and she goes, after I wrote her a check, she followed me to the door, which was weird. 
and she had like a door and then a secondary door and she kept following me and to the outside to the lawn and she started screaming at me have fun with your narcissism book and then she called me a, a foul word and and I was like oh, oh my, my word. word what what is this woman so I left there she immediately called the pastor and said she's already filed for divorce which I had not and then the, the pastor called me and chewed me out and called me all kinds of names and things. But the church was the number one obstacle. They not only completely blamed me, even though you could, it was factual he had not worked for 17. It was factual that he was a porn addict. It was factual that he had had affairs, factual he had had children with other people, um, factual. But yet it was the uh, subjective ideas of me being a woman is the reason, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, the pastor would even, he threatened me on several occasions. He, there's a recorded conversation between him and my ex that my ex tried to prove that he was in the right by posting it up on Facebook. Again, I say he's a little smart, but kind of stupid. Um, and in this, this audio, the pastor encourages him to harm me and the kids. So we're in the, in the church financially supported him. And five years later, they are still financially supporting him. He does not have to work because they pay for everything. Yeah. And I just want to jump in here and say for the listeners, Becky actually let me listen to the audio of this pastor that she had, she had recorded the conversation on the phone and it is unbelievable. I mean, this person is not is not a Christ follower at all. This person is, I mean, I just well, and and for anyone who's listening, that ha- it is Cornerstone Presbyterian in Franklin, Tennessee, and his name is Nate Sheridan. And if anyone is to go to that church, they need to know he is an abusive, vile, evil man. He really and, is, and he is. It, what's funny is there was a running joke in the church about his wife never smiles. She's under the same type of marriage that we've all experienced. Yep. And she, I know for a fact, she's tried to get out now um, at least once. And now she has to go see that counselor that I did. I know it's just insidious. So anyway, that was my biggest obstacle was um, in, in, in looking back through everything I did. My ex was, you know, cruel and ugly and nasty and uh, all the bad things, but it was nothing compared to what I had to deal with in the church. Yeah. Yeah. It's so sad. It's just, it's just, it's the exact opposite of what, what you'd expect. Is this content resonating with you? I've written a book for women of faith and destructive relationships called, Is It Me? Making Sense of Your Confusing Marriage, A Christian Woman's Guide to Hidden Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. You can read reviews and find out more about my book on Amazon.com. It comes in paperback, Kindle, and Audible formats. And new for 2020, I've created a companion workbook for Is It Me? also available on Amazon. This workbook is like 11 power-packed therapy sessions to help you process through the important material you'll be learning from my book. These books are recommended by counselors and therapists all over the United States. I've also got a website specifically focused on helping women of faith find hope and healing. It's called flyingfreenow.com. I'll even give you the first chapter of my book and the first chapter of my companion workbook for free when you hop on my mailing list at the top of my website. Those two resources are going to help you figure out if your relationship is normal or destructive. And now let's get back to our episode. 
So you got, so you ended up getting divorced. Um, how did life get harder for you or did life get harder for you in any way after the divorce? And what were some of the negative things that happened because you actually got out or, or, or was it all good? Well, um, it was both. It was good and bad. So my ex broke into our home four different times and I had to go to court to get the police could not arrest him because legally he was on the, um, the rental agreement. And so I went to court to get ownership of the house so that I could stop him from breaking in. And when he broke in, it was to, he tried to burn the house down one time. Like this isn't, it wasn't like, He's a scary, scary guy. Business. Yeah. And um, in fact, uh, so I went to court and, and what, I, what I say to many women is that's where I found justice. You cannot find it in a church, but you can find it in a courthouse. I remember vividly the judge looking after eight hours of testimony, the judge looking at my ex-husband and said, you have abused your wife and kids for 20 years and it stops today. And I just, and so I know even conservative people are like, the government's bad. The government's bad. We can't let them in our home. And uh, the sheriffs, the police, the firefighters, the uh, law enforcement, the social workers, the judges, all of those were the only time I have found goodness in life is through those people. And so um, the church is where, I found damage and destruction. Mm-hmm. And so I'm when people are quick to say, um, oh, you can't trust the government or whatever, I have a different perspective. It's the only place that women are protected. Yeah. Uh, in, well in my experience. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I know there's gonna be listeners that would that do have healthy churches that have been really supportive. I think that's I think there's the percentage Both is probably pretty low. Um, And there are also going to be listeners who have tried to get, who have run into real problems in the court as far as like with their custody of their kids and all of that kind of thing. Because sometimes the court, actually, I I think the court often, right now in our culture today, the court plays against the women. It used to be the other way. It used to be that they favored the mothers and they um, they disfavored the fathers. But now the tide has kind of turned on that. Yeah. And most women do not have exes who haven't worked for 17 years. Like right. were, I had so many solid facts. I right. didn't have to prove emotional abuse. Right. Well, and I, yeah, that's, yeah. and that's just the thing too, that I wanted to uh, bring out in this interview is that your abuse, your abusive ex was more overtly abuse, abusive, Very much. Abuse, physically abusive. He was abusive on every, financially abusive on every level. He was abusive. And a lot of the listeners here are most of their exes were kind of were like mine, very covert abuse, very difficult. Put on a good face. Yeah. Yes. Looks really great on the outside. And yours looked really great. And all abusers look pretty good on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. Until they're exposed. But But I had, I had fact instead of uh, my feelings. Exactly. It wasn't a he said, she said. It was like actual. Right. Yeah. And you're right. And, but isn't that great, Natalie, how, God will look at each situation and bring exactly what you need. Yes. Like so for me, I needed a justice system. You did. Yeah. For, for other women, they they need a church that will become their justice system. Yeah. So I don't want to say I'm like against all churches. I'm just saying the ideology of 
at its very fundamental root um, that women somehow are less or, or, or number two uh, really does play a big role in the lives of women uh, yep. across the board. So, it does. so yeah, so it got hard um, in my work. Uh, I do work in the homeschooling uh, world. I was banned from all homeschool conventions because I'm a divorced woman. Um, mm. I lost a lot of customers because I could not publicly say, you know, even to this day, I don't publicly say a whole lot um, to the homeschooling community because um, they just can't understand a husband trying to kill his wife and kids. They just can't comprehend that. And, and so I they choose not to believe it. Right. And I still live in danger. Like he's still up. He was in jail just this past year in 2019, again, for doing things like it has not stopped. Um, it stopped a lot more than it ever has because of the court system and because of jail. <laughs> but, um, you know, the downside is I can't share everything uh, with with homeschoolers because, number one, they they don't most do not. Most live in a worldview that says the woman has to be the wrong. She's a feminist. She's a whatever. It never really gives room for the man to be an abuser. Yeah. Unfortunately. So, so where are you at today? Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about what your life looks like today? And how many years ago was your divorce final? And yeah. So um, it took a little about a year to, to finalize the divorce. And then, um, but bef- like early, early on, a homicide detective met with me from the police department because, uh, because the police were at my house so often. And he, he came in to see how he could help me protect myself better, like with security systems and all that. And after hearing everything, he, he looked at me, he said, ma'am, 50% of the women in your situation are dead before the divorce is final. And he said, I've got a friend who's a firearms instructor. You need a gun and you need to have a gun in multiple places in your home and you need to have your children know how to use it. And that's a really scary idea. Mm -hmm. And so the next day, less than 24 hours later, I was sitting in the parking lot of a a range, a a gun range, going in for my lessons and to get my license and to get a gun and all that. And never in my life... Um, I had a really bad experience with a gun when I was a child. And so I never wanted a gun in my home. Not that I'm anti-gun. I just, I had a bad experience. My mom used to point it at us and say, I'll kill you. So I, I mean, it was really bad. Uh (laughs) So I didn't want that in my home. And so I literally was sitting in the parking lot crying, asking God, like, I thought you promised me that you would take care of me. Like, and, and here I am, I'm having to go get a gun. I'm having to do all this, you know, it's gotten this bad. And as clear as day, I remember the Lord going, Becky, everything you've asked for is behind those doors. Just go in. And I really thought at the moment that meant protection, peace, like, okay, Lord, if this is the way that you're going to protect me, okay, fine. So I walk in and I asked for the instructor, Leroy Ferris. And he happened to be at the, at the register place and he turned around and he goes, that would be me. And he had the most Southern drawl I have ever heard. <laughs> and, um, he, uh, and so the funniest part was I got to the, the classroom and it was a one-on-one because he wanted to get me completely up and going in one day and then the kids the next day um, because the homicide detective was his personal friend and he called and explained the situation. So the first thing I asked this 
firearms instructor, because I'm like super nervous and all that. And my ex was actually making notes on his phone and our phones were still synced through Apple. Um, and so I could see him and he was making notes about how he would kill us, where he would <sighs> put the body parts unbelievable, and all that. And so I just looked at this guy who used to be in law enforcement and all this. And I said, if you were going to kill your wife, would you write it down? Cause I was trying to see like, how serious is my ex? Is this just him daydreaming? And you know, cause you know, narcissists tend to have a, a dream life, you know? Mm-hmm. And he just looked at me and later I said, what did you think of that? And he goes, man, I thought you were a crazy woman, <laughs> but that man became my husband, um, mm-hmm. uh, a, about a year and a half later. And, um, the, he was everything I had prayed for 17 years for. I literally had a list. God, please make my husband this, this, and this. And it was everything I prayed for. So things got considerably better. Um, We've had some rough spots um, when my ex, we hid the fact that we got married because we knew how dangerous my ex was. And, and sure enough, when he found out, he, he, he texted me that he was going to kill me. And I had, we called the sheriff's department and had them sit at the end of our street. And they kind of just questioned every car coming through for that day. And they caught him and they put his butt in jail. And I feel like I could write a lifetime movie. (laughs) Seriously. How crazy this is. But, but um, yeah, we are at a much better place. So I think the thing that I am most appreciative of is my kids though. Um, my kids had never had a good father and four of my five kids, the four youngest are, they call Leroy dad. And, uh, my son who just enlisted and is, is now in the army as a, um, <laughs> he's a ta- uh, almost like a tank driver. But anyway, he, uh, when he was in basic, he wrote more letters to, to Leroy than he did to me. And Leroy wrote him a letter every day. Wow. And he said, I only got through basic because of Leroy's letters. And so he he was here for Christmas break or his, um, you know, leave. And uh, he spent more time with Leroy than he did with me. And I was okay with that because that's all I've asked for. Yeah. Since the kids were, that they would have a father. Yeah. And so my daughter, two of the daughters, I mean, they just adore him as their father. They, they, they write letters to him as, as, you know, as a dad. And, and then our youngest is, uh, wants to become a firearms instructor because of Leroy. Mm. Um, so yeah, so the, the, there was a lot of bad, but there is, I've got, I'm, I'm young. I'm in my forties. Yes. That's young. (laughs) And I've got 40 more years to live. So yeah, he, this abuser took 20. Okay. I got, I got, I got 40 more yeah. and I'm a lot smarter and I have my autonomy. That's right. That's amazing. Okay. So what is one, what is one thing that you feel like you learned through this whole process that you wish if you could go back and tell your younger self, what would it be? Oh, um, probably to in some way, helped me see as a younger person that I had autonomy and that I was valued as a human being. And just because I'm a woman didn't take that away Yeah. and that I could make my own decisions and I could make my, I, I watch my daughters. One is um, finishing up her degree for psychology and going into law school. The other one has a very successful career already. 
both of them make all their own decisions. They're both married. Um, and I just, they're everything I've ever wanted to be. So I, I cannot be happier, but I wish I would have known. And, and part of that would have been stay away from the conservative church movement. Um, you know, you don't need Jesus to have it, you know, you don't need church to have Jesus. But for me, the church was the most negative impact in my life. If I, I would have been out of my abusive marriage way earlier, had it not been for the church. Yep. Yep. That's good stuff. And, and then if you were to talk to someone, a younger friend who is thinking about leaving for good, because there are a lot of listeners that are actually in that place. They're wondering, what should I do? Should I stay and try to, I know I can't make it work, but should I stay and just survive or should I leave? Well, I would say if, if there are no children involved, get out. I mean, just get out because every day that you are remaining is a day your abuser is stealing from you and you only have one life to live. If there are children, you need to research the laws and see what's going to happen. I think it is a grace of God that I did not uh, divorce till the kids were mostly grown because here's this guy who eventually I found child pornography on his laptops, which went to the FBI, by the way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And had I divorced earlier and he had the kids 50% of the time, I don't know what he would have done with them. And so I think if you have kids, there's a, a bigger question there. If, if he's just like some, uh, some of the ladies in, in this group where it's just he's a covert narcissist, just know that, you know, find out is it going to be better to stay and deal with it until the kids are raised. And as soon as those kids are grown, get out. Don't waste one more minute because he's never going to change. And then, I mean, if you're going to stay in it, I have to say the last three years of my bad marriage, I, I was learning to put up, put down boundaries slowly starting as I understood narcissism and all that. Um, and I think that just helped a little bit. Yeah, that's good. Becky, this was amazing. I mean, there are so many good things in here that I think are going to be really helpful for people, even if they are in an emotionally abusive relationship. You guys, if you're listening and you're thinking, oh, this doesn't really apply to me because my husband's not threatening to kill me. My husband doesn't swear at me. My husband doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't hit me. He doesn't even threaten to hit me. In fact, he, you know, and he does really nice things. My husband works really hard. He's bringing in a good paycheck. He supports, he's faithful. I, all of this stuff still applies. Okay. Emotional abuse is just as insidious as all of this other stuff. So Becky's Becky's got one of the more extreme examples, but we are going to be interviewing some more survivors coming up here this next year in 2020. And they're going to be coming from all kinds of different abusive backgrounds. And so you'll get to hear lots of different angles on this, but I'm really glad that we started with you, Becky, because um, I think there are people that are going through severe Abuse yeah, and, and they don't want to say anything. Right. And I would say too, even if it's not as severe, my ex didn't always hit me. All of this kind of gradually came about over 20 years. But I will tell you one thing we all share in common is when somebody is emotionally and psychologically abusing you, you don't enjoy the day. Period. You and you have one life to live. I, I remember somebody telling me that. You have, in fact, it was, it's my husband, my good husband. 
he just, he, and you know what? He, um, he's got a great perspective on life, but he just looks at me and goes, Becky, we only have one. This is it. This is our only opportunity. And, you know, the church doesn't necessarily tell you that, but if somebody could shake you and say, you've got one opportunity, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. It really brings it into perspective. And I don't, I don't want to live one more day feeling like I'm worthless and nothing and that right. I'm not loved. Right. Well, and I think the church would argue that they would say, um, well, you know, we're living for eternity, but I would argue back and say, yes, that is true, but that's not exclusive. You know, that, that doesn't mean that we just ignore this so this life that God's given to us on this earth. Well, if that's, then I would come back with, oh, so you think Corey Ten Boone should have stayed in a, in a concentration camp. Right, right. She, exactly. And I mean, she would have been slaughtered if she would have stayed and not gotten out when they let her get out. Right. Um, they sent everybody else to the, the gas chambers after that. And she, so she barely escaped with her life. And then she would have gone into eternity. But yeah. so, you know, again, you know, that, that's just, it's just, it's, Sometimes I think the way Christians can tend to think is not even common sense in some ways. I think we have to apply some common sense to our lives. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, and it's always great if you can get away from all of it for a while to do your own thinking. Exactly. I I agree with that. I appreciate what you do, Natalie. You're a great woman. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I, I wish I could tell them all the amazing things you do. Uh, but I can't because we don't want you. We don't want to expo- expose you too much here. Thank but, you. But um, Becky is an um, absolutely incredible human being, and she is. I want to be like Becky when I grow up. Let's. <laughs> so I'm really grateful for you taking some of your time. I know you're a busy person to um, share your life with our listeners, and um, that's it. Thank you, Natalie. That was amazing. I absolutely love that woman. This episode of the Flying Free Podcast was sponsored by the Flying Free Sisterhood Community, which offers courses, expert workshops, live coaching, and more for women of faith seeking hope and healing from emotionally and spiritually abusive relationships and communities. You can find out more at joinflyingfree.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, fly free.